We're going to go to Mark chapter 2 this morning. We're going to continue the series that we began a few weeks ago entitled Mightier Than I. Um, Mark, the gospel according to Mark, is the story about how God became king. Jesus is introduced by John the baptizer or John the Baptist as the one who is mightier than I. And it's important for us to catch that right at the outset because this isn't the story of just another spiritual guru or another sort of religious fad that happened to come on the scene a couple thousand years ago. This is Jesus the Messiah. This is God who became king. And Mark, our writer, is being very deliberate to set the tone right at the outset. This is the one who is mightier than I. This is the one who we're meant to look up to as the savior of the world and the king of our lives. This is Jesus um, who we call Lord. And that's in fact where we ended last week. I think we erased it. Um, But we ended on one of the most ancient and arguably most important of all of the Christian creeds that we've got and have held on to, and that is, Jesus is Lord. He is the one who is mightier than I. So, this week, we're going to jump into chapter 2, and we're going to go chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. Are you ready? Okay. And we'll have most of the text up there. And when Jesus... That is, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes who were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to them, Him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. 
And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I love that we are introduced to the Messiah. Let me back up. We need to note to ourselves that we're reading this book as arguably the original readers of Mark would have read this story. Okay, they have already heard the rumors, perhaps have even witnessed themselves the reality that Jesus, who claimed to be the Son of Man or the Christ, died and then came back to life three days, conquered the grave. Okay, so we're reading from a vantage point. We, we already know the end of the story, but we're getting to glimpse into the world that this king is now inaugurating his kingdom, and we're getting to, to experience what this kingdom feels like and looks like and is being expressed as sort of in real life terms, real time. And I love that. Because what we're not being introduced to is the kingdom of a new idea. This is not just some abstract sort of spirituality. This is the king inaugurating his new kingdom. And we're seeing it actually like impact lives. It's causing controversy. It's compelling people to drag their paralytic friend to a house they can't get in because Jesus has gone viral. And we're seeing the religious elite, uh, the scribes, the, the experts of the law, Torah. They're not so sure they like what's going on. And this is all happening. And it's the kingdom of Jesus in a very dynamic sort of way. It's being depicted as more than just an idea. It's having an effect. And so what can we say? Well, there's a lot going on. There's a lot we can say, particularly in this story. And by the way, if you're wondering, why did we read 17 whole verses? These two chunks, these two stories, as it were, they have to be read together. They're, they're totally, obviously connected. Let's start with the anticipation so we got to put ourselves there. Jesus, um, of course, this is, this is just like the early days of his ministry. He's only getting started. Word is definitely getting out, even though he's trying to keep it on the down low. But the crowd has assembled. The, the, the crowd is so dense that people can't even get in to see him. The rumor's clearly gotten out. He's cast out demons. He's healed people. And so now you've got four guys and a, a mate, apparently, a friend who's paralyzed, don't know a whole lot about how it happened or if he was born that way. But four guys and their friend who's paralyzed determined to get into this house because they've heard the rumors. 
This Jesus, this guy, no one knows what to do with him. But apparently, he has the power to heal. And when he teaches the word, he does it with like this kind of authority. Like this isn't mere speculation. He's not just teaching the ideas, and we've heard all that. But he's teaching as if he's like, like the words are his own. So they're determined to get into this house. Now, like just, just track with me. We've got to feel the anticipation. They're trying to get in. You would think they got a paralyzed guy with them. They're carrying him along on a gurney. Maybe they got him like in a blanket of some sort. And they're trying to get to Jesus. And, you know, you would think they could just be, excuse me, excuse me. We, we've got, we've got, a, got a friend here. He's paralyzed. Can we get through? Sorry, pregnant coming through, please. You know, and people are just, oh, so, so sorry. You know, come on through. But no. Like, they cannot make their way through the crowd. So somehow they managed to get this guy up on the roof. And I've heard all sorts of sort of speculation about like what, what was this roof, and was it a messy situation? Like, did you see little bits of dust start to fall down from the ceiling, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, like, what is that? Like, and then, you know, all of a sudden you see a little beam of light pierce through the roof, and you're like, oh my goodness, like, what's going on? Like, is there an animal on the roof? And they begin to, to peel back a bit of this roof, and they lower this guy down. And it must have taken at least a few minutes. And could you imagine, like, the anticipation that would have been building up in the room? Like, people would have been like, what is going on? What on earth? Of course, whoever the owner of the, it could have been a synagogue. Someone would have been offended for sure. Like, yo... That's my roof. <laughs> but I mean, I read the story, you know, and you gotta try to slow down a little bit because Mark is really wanting to put us there. I mean, he could have just cut right to the chase. The FYI, Jesus heals. He's putting us in the story. And I would contend that the anticipation must have been palpable. Like, what is going to happen next? And everyone's probably wondering, like, what on earth? And, of course, eventually the, the man gets down. He's, 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 he's lowered to the feet of Jesus. And everyone's like, okay, I get it now. This guy's paralyzed. Apparently these, these guys were desperate to get their friend before Jesus. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? What does he do? He looks at the man and he said, son, first he says, seeing their faith, can't miss that bit, seeing their faith, whose faith? Who's there? Their friends? The, the friends and the paralytic? Just the friends? Seeing their faith. I've, I've often wondered to myself, if I was the paralytic, I, I, I would have felt very, very insecure. Like, well, it's cool, guys. Like, come on. Like, just no, really, it's fine. I've been paralyzed for a long time now. Like, let's not make a scene. <laughs> and I, if it was me, again, I'm speculating, obviously, but if it was me, I would have been like, guys, no, come on. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, there'll be other opportunities, I'm sure. But maybe these guys, maybe they had, like, the kind of faith. Like, they were utterly convinced, I guess, that if somehow they could just get their friend. Or maybe it was the other way around. Maybe the paralytic was like, look, I'm desperate. Maybe the friends are like, I don't know. this. Are you sure? Are you sure this is a good idea? 
Like, we could drop you. This could go terribly bad. Who's, who's got the faith? And what, what does this tell us about the nature of faith? So this is important. I think we very much live um, in a world, as it were, where we tend to think of faith as, as um, it's, it's a belief for sure, but we make it into a very sort of cognitive sort of belief. There's certain things that I'm meant to believe about God, certain doctrinal details, um, and if I believe it enough, then that's, that's faith. Is that faith? What if I don't believe enough? What if I want to believe, but I've, I've got like a little bit of doubt and I'm convinced that God can like totally see where I'm really at? I'd like to think that those four men and their paralytic friend probably didn't know for sure that this was going to like all end well. And they had heard the rumors, but you know, there's no guarantee that if they get them to Jesus, Jesus didn't heal everyone. But he saw their faith. And I simply want to make the point, and this is a bit of a side point, but I think it's important, that there's something visible about faith. We, get, we tend to, I've met a lot of people, and I've tried to like tell them about Jesus. I'm like, look, you've got you've to meet Jesus. You need Jesus. I wish I had faith like you. I wish I could believe like you, Simon. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just, maybe, maybe someday, maybe someday I'll, I'll get the faith you have. Maybe I'll catch it. And there's this idea that like, well, I don't, I don't really feel like I believe it, and therefore I maybe, maybe I just simply don't. I, I think that is, a, um, that is to reduce faith down to something purely abstract and cognitive, or perhaps even, even just this sort of emotional thing. You know, I feel like I believe something in my mind. But what's happening? He saw their faith. That's it, he saw their faith. I would argue that faith, it's not void of content. It's not, it's not like it's completely removed from what we might think or believe or feel, but it's not merely those things. I think faith is always expressed in visible action. And even if you feel like, ah, I don't know if I have enough faith, I'm kind of struggling inside, and I've got all these questions, and I, I don't know if I'm quite ready to follow Jesus, because I don't have the faith, as if it's like this sort of like magic emotion that just you either got it or you don't. I'd say anyone can take a step of faith, and it involves thinking, it involves believing, it involves feeling, and it also involves just simply saying, I don't know exactly how this is all going to go, but darn it, I've heard Jesus heals. And I want to get close to this guy. I'm willing to rip the roof off if it means we can get close to the one who I heard even has the authority to forgive sins. So I want to encourage you with that. You're like, I don't know if I have faith. I'm not a Christian. How can I become a Christian if I don't have faith? Faith is a process. You can make a choice. You can take a step. 
So let's talk about um, forgiveness. So the anticipation is palpable. I mean, the buildup is off the Richter scale. They finally got the roof off. They've lowered this man down. And what does Jesus say? Son, your sins are forgiven. You can only imagine, like, with just, like, the, the awkwardness in the room. Like, what do you say? What do you say? He says, what? Your sins are forgiven? That's not what we are hoping for. And to be honest, I find that slightly offensive. Like, what are you, what are you implying? My sins are forgiven. So have you ever, like, had conflict with someone? And you're both really mad at each other, and, but you're convinced like it's their fault. And then finally you're like, okay, you know what? We're just, we're just going to get over this. We're going to move on. And so that they say to you, but I just want you to know I forgive you. And you're like, what do you mean you forgive me? No, I forgive you. There's an implication. There's an implication. Like, what do you mean my sins are forgiven? I'm, I have paralyzed body, and you're telling me my sins are forgiven? And again, we want, we've gone from like palpable anticipation to now like unbearable awkwardness. Like, oh my goodness, like what did he say? Now, let me, let me make this point, because this is really important. Some of you, if you're like me, your, your mind's going to go here. You might be thinking, oh, well, okay, so Jesus, I mean, he's just like well in tune with the Spirit, so he must realize that this guy did something really bad, and karma says that he's paralyzed. So that's, that must be what's happening here. And so Jesus is just cutting right to the chase, and like, well, the reason this has happened to you is because you've done something really, really bad, and therefore I forgive you. And I think that would be a gross uh, presumption. I think it'd be to misunderstand the moment, to miss the heart of God, really. And I'll I'll go there in a second. Um, John chapter 9. Wonderful, wonderful example of how that's wrong. Uh, The disciples are with Jesus. And it says they're walking to Jerusalem. And they come across a man who is born blind. And the disciples say to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? This man, the man who was born blind, or his parents, that he was born blind. So they're convinced, like, someone sinned. Either their parents did something awful, or this man sinned, like, in the womb, or something. But someone sinned, and that's why he's blind. And Jesus said, no, you're mistaken. It's neither. But it was that the glory of my Father might be displayed in him. He says, wrong question. Wrong question. It has nothing to do with who sinned. The world's broken. People get born blind. Congenital defects are real because we live in a broken world that needs to be restored. It needs the kingdom of heaven to come crashing down and in and on everything. So this has nothing to do with this man has sinned, and that's why he's paralyzed, and that's why Jesus is pronouncing forgiveness of sins. It's not that. It's not that. I mean, it could be, I guess, but I, I think that would be presuming way too much. 
So what is it? Why does he say, son, your sins are forgiven? And I would, I would suggest at least a couple things. One, again, remember the moment. Remember the moment. Like all eyes on Jesus. I mean, the buildup is just unreal. And now, here it is. Everyone would have expected him to say, you're healed. I see your faith. You're healed. Arise, go home. But he doesn't. He says, your sins are forgiven. No one says anything, apparently. But he discerns the hearts of the scribes. And it says immediately he perceived that the scribes, remember the scribes, these are the experts of Torah. They knew the book cover to cover. They knew, quote unquote, knew how it was supposed to work. And they were offended. They were indignant. They were bothered. They said in their hearts, why does he speak like this? Only God alone can forgive sins. He's blaspheming. Now, we're introduced to a type of character that we'll see pop up over and over and over again as, as Mark goes on. It's, it's this type of person who seems much, much, much more concerned about protocol and about how they think God should be and how this should all be going down versus the fact that you've got this broken, desperate person, obviously hurting, probably on many levels, Physically, obviously, but who knows how long he's been living this way. In the society that he was living in, he would have been considered valueless, marginalized, worthless, in the way. He would have been riddled with shame. And the scribes were more concerned with like, no, 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 no. You're not doing it right. You're mistaken. As opposed to this poor, broken individual who was desperately coming to Jesus for healing. It says, Jesus perceived that they were questioning in their hearts. And get the irony. They had missed the heart of God. They missed the heart of God. Oh, they knew the book. They were experts. They were the scribes. They were the ones who would have arguably had the entire Pentateuch memorized. They would have known, oh, it's, it's unreal how the ancients were able to memorize massive, massive portions of Scripture. But they knew it. They were the experts if they question in their hearts, why is he doing this for this broken man? And they, they had missed the heart of God himself. What is the heart of God? What is the heart of God? This is an important question. What is at the very core of God's heart? It's a big book. It's a lot of stories. lot of stories. Some of them very, very extreme. I mean, up until just a few weeks ago, we spent a lot of time in the Old Testament, which makes sense because most of the Bible is the Old Testament. But some of the stories that you get to in there, you're like, God did what? God said, God, what? Like, this is extreme. I mean, God can be extremely angry. There's a lot in the Bible about the wrath of God. 
but the judgment, Old and New Testament. Like a lot of people die in this book. And it's really disturbing, at least for me. So, I don't know, maybe you're into it. I, for me, I'm like, ah, oh, like, why? <laughs> this is so hard. And guys, we could say all sorts of things about why does God judge sin and sinners so intensely? He is a judge, he's a righteous judge. But if you were to meet God, and let's say you had a, a moment with him. Let's say Jesus was the exact representation of his father. Let's say if you looked at Jesus, you saw God. Let's say if as a human being, I wanted to understand the heart of God, all I really needed to do was to look into the eyes of Jesus, to hear his words and to watch his actions. And then I would know, oh, I get it. So as a human, that's my, that's my frame of reference. That's what God's like. Let's just, let's just suppose. What should I walk away with? What is the heart of God? I would say, I would say what God said about himself when Moses said, God, reveal your glory to me. Exodus 34, reveal your glory to me. And God says, right, you want to know who I am? You want to know my name? Buckle up. And this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, to the thousandth generation, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Don't get too caught up on the, the whole generational thing there. The Lord, the Lord. You want to know my name? Here it is. In order of importance. Compassionate. Gracious. Slow to anger. Patient. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Oh my goodness. Our Heavenly Father is unfathomably faithful. Maintaining love to thousands, forgiving, etc., etc. This is the heart of God. If you've only got one life to work your way through this scripture, and then you walk away with like, hey, what's, what's the main thing here? What's the big point? What's the takeaway? What if I miss everything else? I mustn't miss this. What is God like? What is God's heart? He's gracious. He's merciful. He's compassionate. Does he punish sin? Oh, God, yes. It's terrifying. Utterly terrifying. But does he ever, 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 ever give up on his children? Never. He's faithful. He's gracious. And they missed it. They missed it. I, I'm, I'm really wanting to emphasize this, guys, because this is something that we need to, I hope this might sting a little of you guys, a few of you guys, because something happens. Knowledge can puff up. If you obsess 
over learning every little thing exactly perfectly. If for you, the whole point is to make sure that you've got the perfect doctrine, and your job, of course, is to police everyone else around you, and that's it, you will miss the heart of God. Just keep going down that path. Eventually, you might wake up one day and be more concerned about, wait a second, how can you forgive this guy's sin? Versus, oh my gosh, this poor broken man, he's receiving grace from Jesus. Be careful. Guys, let's be people of truth. Let's be passionate about studying and meditating upon and learning and applying God's word. Equally and arguably, even more importantly so, let's be people of grace who don't miss the heart of God and our determination to become masters of the book. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. The rhetorical question, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or arise and go home? Obviously, anyone could rock up and just say, oh, you're forgiven. Holy water, sprinkle, sprinkle, whatever. Like, Okay, anyone could do that. Anyone could do that. So it's obviously a rhetorical question, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Son, get up, go home. You're healed, and he does. Mic drop, point made, in your face. (laughs) But that you may know that the Son of Man we gotta, we got to catch that one. Who's the son of man? This is the first time Jesus applies that title to himself. And he'll continue to do so all throughout the book. It's his primary sort of like uh, title of, of self-reference. The son of man. Who's the son of man? Now, again, he's speaking to these, these religious hypocrites, I would say. Experts of the law have missed the heart of God. And he's saying it to them, that you may know that the Son of Man, who's the Son of Man? Go Old Testament. You see the Son of Man referenced a few times here and there throughout the Old Testament. Once you get to the prophet, one of the major prophets, Ezekiel, it's like, ah, the Son of Man. Ezekiel was the one who God referred to as the Son of Man. All throughout the prophet Ezekiel, he said, Son of Man, say this. Son of Man, do that. Son of Man, pronounce this judgment. Let's go to the next slide, please. I've just picked a few just to make the point. Ezekiel 12, verse 2. Son of Man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house. Who have eyes to see, but see not. Who have ears to hear, but hear not. For they are a rebellious house. 12, verse 9. Son of Man. Has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, what are you doing? 14.3, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity, their sins, before their faces. Chapter 20, verse 27, therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, thus says the Lord God, 
In this also your fathers blaspheme me. You blaspheme me by dealing treacherously with me. In verse uh, 34, verse 2, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, the scribes, the priests. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? As soon as Jesus said, the son of man, okay, it's, it would have been obvious to his hearers. Oh, oh, what are you implying exactly? What do you mean son of man? That's Ezekiel talk. Are you talking to us? Are you implying something that perhaps we have missed, that we have been feeding ourselves, that we have been blaspheming, that we have been laying our sins as stumbling blocks in way of the people? Is that what you're implying? So it's, it's, it's trash talk. He's saying something very, very offensive to the religious hypocrites, to the scribes, to the Pharisees. In the next slide, Daniel 7, you can't miss this one. This is the other great son of man reference that you find in the Old Testament. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel the prophet saw in the night vision and behold the clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the first time Jesus uses the title Son of Man. You know the very last time Jesus applies this title to himself in the book of Mark? Next slide, please. Mark 14, 62. And Jesus said, I am. They asked him, are you the Messiah? I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I am the Son of Man. I am the one that was foretold. I am the one that's going to establish my kingdom. I'm the one who will call all the nations of the world to join my kingdom or to suffer the judgment of the righteous one. I'm that one. I am the Son of Man. Jesus is drawing the battle line. This is kingdom talk. This is controversial. Of course, we're getting ahead of ourselves now. Just ruin the ending. <laughs> King Jesus, the mighty one, is beginning to reveal to the people exactly what kind of king he means to be. He's the compassionate one. Jesus heals the man. He does heal the man. We mustn't forget that bit. Your sins are forgiven. And then he heals him. He says, arise and go home. Be healed and go home. And then he leaves. Goes for a walk along the sea. The crowd is following. He sees a tax collector sitting in his little booth, a Jewish man named Levi. You know about the tax collectors, right? So the Romans would employ Jewish people to collect taxes from their own people to support the empire. 
This is like a dodgy, dodgy situation. Let's fund the oppressors. Who wants to get involved? Okay, Levi would have been a hated individual, like beyond just a quote-unquote sinner. He, he was in cahoots with the Romans. And Jesus begins walking by, and he says, Levi, come, follow me, follow me. Levi's like, for real? Okay. And he follows Jesus. Jesus, where are we going? Oh, I don't know. How about your house? You got money, right? Well, yeah. The whole, the whole tax collecting gig has, has worked for me. Cool, let's go. Classic Jesus. Come, follow me. Where are we going? I don't know. Let's go to your house. You got food in the fridge? So they go to Levi's house. And they have a big party. Packed. Full of tax collectors, naturally, sinners of all sorts and kinds. Of course, the scribes have followed. I, it's a, I, you know what it makes me think of? Like this, this is, so when the kingdom of heaven breaks out, when the abstract eternal begins to actually like take effect in, in human terms, in, in like real life, this is what it looks like. A big dinner party packed full of disciples, uh, sinners, and the scribes. The scribes. Where do you fit in? Where do you fit in? Are, are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you following the one who is mightier than I? Are you beginning to believe that he might, in fact, be who you've heard he is? Are you trying to get closer to him? Like, I want to experience his power. Have you received his forgiveness? Are you one of the sinners? Maybe you're a bit of both. Maybe you're like me. You're like, I'm, I'm definitely following Jesus I've experienced his power. I've been forgiven, but I'm still working it out. Are you a scribe? If you were, you probably wouldn't know it. That's the nature of pride. Hmm. I will say this, though. So Jesus definitely reserved his most intense words for the religious hypocrites. So that, that's real. Like if we were at a, at a church service and we're worshiping Jesus and you're like, oh, I'm a Christian, this and that. But Jesus could discern hypocrisy because he's like looking right into your heart and he knows what you do and he knows what I do throughout the rest of the week. Okay, he, he would have some very like, severe words for the religious hypocrites, for sure. What about the sinners and the tax collectors? Isn't it ironic that they were the ones sitting at the table with King Jesus, 
They were the ones sharing an intimate meal. You know how they did it in the, the ancient Near East, right? They would like recline at these like short little tables. When I was in Israel, they were showing us all this stuff. And you'd like, I don't know how they did it. Like they would actually lay on their side and like kind of like eat their food. It's a very intimate kind of thing. It's like having a cuddle and sharing a meal at the same time. No, I'm just kidding. it's nothing like that. But for sure, it is an intimate moment, particularly in that culture. To share a meal was like, that you, for Jesus to share a meal with sinners, I mean, he was breaking major religious protocol. Like, just, it's just offensive. And yet he was the one eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. As we form this little community, you know, we've almost, we've been a church for about two years now. I mean, officially, officially speaking, next week will like be like, like our, the Sunday we did our launch. Um, yeah, so we're forming this community. I was having, uh, anyone know Tom McGregor from Door Hope? Is it Tom? Yeah, a couple of you guys? Super cool guy. And um, I bumped into him on the campus of Western Seminary on Friday, and we're both taking courses there. And he was introducing me to someone, and he said, oh, this is, uh, this is Simon. He's the church planter um, at Grace City. And then he stopped himself. He's like, well, I guess technically, I don't think you're really a church planter anymore. I think the church is planted. So I'm like, yeah, like, I don't know, when do you? Anyway. <laughs> Um, so two years, I reckon it's still early days and we're forming something. We're forming a culture. It's really exciting. Like if you want to be a part of this guys, just all you have to do is fill out a connection card. It's as simple as that. (laughs) And we can build this family together and we can follow Jesus together and we can create the kind of community that when sinners and tax collectors come in. They will feel welcome to sit down and be intimate with Jesus. Oh, to be sure, Jesus is going to talk about our sin. Like, he's so awkward like that. He's going to, you know, I'm going to come to him with, like, I've got, like, a pain. I've got sickness. I've got, like, a real-life issue. And he's going to want to talk about my sin. Super awkward. I will say this as well, though, and I really got to stop. But the pain that you and I bring to Jesus could very well be the the very gift that gets us close enough to him to receive the real healing, the eternal sort of healing we all really need. It's interesting that he got healed, which by the way, was a temporary matter. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced, it's not in the Bible, but I believe it, that that paralytic eventually died. Like permanent paralyzation and decay. Okay. It was a temporary thing. And I'm not trying to make light of like healing. Like I want to be healed. I want to feel good. But Jesus, he, he's looking at the heart. He's saying, yeah, I can address your body. I can help your finances. I can heal your marriage. And all that's good and important. And in fact, we'll gives God the opportunity to display his glory through our blindness. But Jesus was really interested in getting to our hearts. 
Because he has gone before us to prepare a home for his family to live in with him for eternity. Which is why we need to be forgiven by our king. Can we stand together, please? Guys, we're going to have a baptism. You ready, Joey? You're now listening to Grace City Portland. I mean, wow, guys. Like, if that doesn't pump you up, I don't know. I don't know what else we can do. So it's going to be really great. (laughs) 